Now, simply by doing nothing more than changing the name of that lead magnet, we went from a cost per acquisition of $8.49 down to $3.20. Welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I'm stoked you've decided to join me on this journey to bring about a massive and positive change in the lives of others. Every week, you're going to join me behind closed doors where I will introduce you to entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators from a variety of industries to learn how their contributions are impacting the lives of others and how they are having a game-changing impact in the world. Thanks for investing your time with me today. Now, Brace for Impact. Hey, I have a request. If any of you have gotten value from the show at all, I would like to invite you to write an honest review in iTunes. It only takes a couple of minutes and it seriously does make a difference and helps point more eyes and ears to the show. And I want to give a big shout out and a thank you to the 82 people as I'm recording this who have already left an honest review of the show. So again, it only takes a couple of minutes. If you need an education on how to do that, hit me up on Twitter, or you can simply go to theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash iTunes, and it should take you to a place where you can leave a review of the show. So thanks again for your time and for tuning in each and every week. And I hope to continue to provide extraordinary value for you every week. Happy New Year and welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. It is a new year full of new opportunities, so it's time for you and me to take new action. We all have goals that we've laid out, hopefully before today, but the three challenges that you and I are going to face along the way are number one, getting started, number two, staying on path, and number three, getting back up and moving forward when things fail or you find yourself struggling or getting stuck. So in the coming weeks, I hope to help you face some of these challenges head on, beginning with a series I'm calling Getting Started. So for the next few weeks, you will hear from the entrepreneurs who have faced significant challenges that had the potential to hold them back from realizing their greatness and realizing the impact that they could have in the world. And what separates them from many others is they saw an opportunity and then swiftly took the next best step toward achieving their goal. I often use a story my mom told me to illustrate this point. So in 1969, Buzz Aldrin took his first steps on the moon and spoke the now famous words, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Meanwhile, Back on Earth, specifically on York Beach in Maine, my mom was sunbathing and couldn't believe that there was really someone on the moon looking back at Earth and at her. It's one thing to believe you can do something, but putting that belief into action is an entirely different thing. So what is your moonshot goal for 2017? Whatever it is, Do what Buzz Aldrin said. Take the next one small step for man that moves you closer to taking that giant leap for mankind. 
So now, round one of the Getting Started series is with Nicholas Kuzmich. I was going to include him in a different series on branding and marketing, but his story fits extremely well with the idea of taking that next best step toward getting started on whatever path you desire. So I wanted to include him in this series. He's an international speaker, creator of the Art of the Lead Generation, and founder of NicholasKuzmich.com, and is best known as the world's leading Facebook advertising strategist for having the highest ROI in the industry, which is another reason why I wanted to include him. Facebook has the potential to be a game changer for you and me in 2017 if we use it right, and he gives us some incredible tips. So a little bit about Nicholas. At the age of 17, being the only child of immigrant parents, he was forced to be the primary breadwinner for his family when his father fell ill and his mother lost her job. With nothing more than a drive to support his family, he went to later create one of the top Facebook advertising agencies and consultancies in the world. He now works with A-list clients, including top thought leaders, New York Times bestselling authors, top Inc. and Fortune 100 companies, providing strategic oversight and fully managed marketing services. This guy is an incredible human being, very generous, and provides a wealth of resources for all of us to consider as we begin tackling our goals in 2017. So bust out your pens and paper. Don't be a podcast junkie. Take some notes and brace for impact. Nicholas Kuzmich, thank you for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I'd like to welcome you, and I'd also like to say congratulations. You're a relatively new dad, so. I am indeed. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, we uh, celebrate 10, I believe 11 weeks actually this morning, so just perfect timing. Well, uh, happy birthday. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll pass it on. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, I'm a father to four kids, so nice. um, it is an amazing, life-changing gift. I am pumped for the adventures that lay ahead for you. Oh, so am I. I'm, I'm going in blind, but I'm excited. <laughs> Sometimes that's the best way to go. Exactly. Yeah. So I always kick things off with the Impact Entrepreneur Show with three questions, and they're about, they're about superpowers, mentors, and why you're an entrepreneur. So, so if you could pick any skill that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower... What would it be, and how would you use it? Uh, that's a great question. I think what I, I know I can only answer that with relation to what I do and what or the craft that I'm looking to uh, master even further. And this it's just kind of for me, it's understanding social behavior. I think if we can understand how humans behave, uh, we can use that for good, and we could use that for obviously business and advertising. But ultimately, in the, at the end of the day, we can use that for good. I mean, I find a lot of people are kind of stuck in uh, where they are, whether that's as an individual or as a business owner looking to get to somewhere. And if we could just understand and why people do what they do and how they do it, and then more specifically, what we can do to help them get past that. Um, if I could bottle that up and sell that or even master that myself even more than I have now, I think that would be a very good superpower. So what are you doing personally uh, since, and we'll dive into Facebook marketing and how, to, how you apply that desire uh, perfectly imperfect on, uh, in your craft, but, but how are you, what are you doing? What steps are you taking to develop that skill and to develop that superpower further? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I think it's a combination of like learning and doing. And one thing that I've become really good at is 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 stopping the learning portion. I think I'm really good at learning, uh, if that's you know a, a reality. Um, but I think what I'm better at is actually just getting in the trenches, rolling up my sleeves, and observing and doing. So for me, because of the nature of what we do, I mean, we advertise on Facebook. So I spend a lot of time on Facebook, but probably not like most of our listeners here who are just browsing to see you know what's happening and what's going on. I mean, as if, I, if I'm posting something on my profile. I'm deciding today I'm going to post it at a certain time and tomorrow I'm going to post it on another time and I'm going to see which one gets more responses. I'm going to change the words I use and the images I use just to see how people react. I'm watching what other people are posting and why they're posting those and why does a picture of my child get 10,000 likes and why does a, you know, a comment about where I was or what I had for lunch yesterday get only four likes? What is causing those sort of things? So I think at the end of the day, it's really doing my best to be a practitioner, getting in the trenches, rolling up my sleeves and making some real clear observations of what I do as an everyday user of a particular platform and then what others are doing on that same platform. That's fascinating. I think that's, uh, you know, we can all learn from taking that same approach to everything that we're doing, be it Facebook advertising or just relating to people in general. Right. Sure. You know, you've coached and mentored some of the biggest names in the personal development coaching expert space. But can you tell us a story about a mentor who has impacted you and maybe shaped your outlook and how you approach business and life? Uh, That's a great question because the reality is most, if not all, of my experiences with mentors have gone uh, gone sour. They have not been good whatsoever. Oh, interesting. And, and I think I'm not going to blame the mentor as much as I'm going to blame myself. I think that had a lot to do with expectations that I put on that person, and maybe they had expectations put on me, and there were not clear communications between that. Um, and so as a result, most of those relationships went sour, and the learnings from it was not so much what to do, but more so what not to do. And so I started think about that and reflect on that a bit. I said, A, why did that happen? And again, I think my conclusion was there were probably some unspoken expectations on both of our parts about what I was hoping from them and then what they were hoping from me. I think there's a strange line that happens when someone starts off as a mentor, then turns into a colleague and a friend, and then almost becomes a client or a mentee to a certain degree. I think that transition gets a little bit awkward as well. So what I found is the greatest learnings and the greatest kind of turning points have come from from my colleagues much more than my mentors. And what I've what I've learned to do in the last several years is surround myself with people who are way smarter than me in areas that I'm unfamiliar with. So I know that there's an old saying that says, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I don't think that's true. Every room I try to go to, I want to be the smartest person in my particular field, but I also want to be the most unintelligent person in the fields that I am not familiar with yet. And so a lot of my... I don't know, personal development or learnings have literally come from colleagues that I've spent time with, either in a personal experience or maybe at an event or something where we're exchanging information and exchanging war stories and that sort of thing. And those types of things have really been the biggest uh, needle movers for myself. What you said earlier, just a moment ago about expectations, that is the biggest gap or shortfall in most relationships is not properly managing expectations and, you know, there's often this massive disconnect between expectations and reality. Yeah. And, and I, one of the things I tell my clients and, and the people that I work with and even my own personal intimate relationships is that preparation is the 
bridge between expectations and reality. And if if I have a fault for my uh, for my own self, it's that I'm an over communicator. Sure. And I do that because I want people to I, I want to know exactly what people expect and not just make assumptions so that I can make sure that I I'm not disappointed or if I if if my expectations aren't going to align to reality, I can move on and start something new or different. Yeah. And I think that's true across the board. Like you said, I mean, well, I had it with my mentors, but also early on starting the business, I had it with clients. Um, and it was really, I think, unmet or improperly communicated expectations um, have been some of the sources of like my greatest pain points in life. So I think you nailed it on the head there where whether it's clients or mentors or intimate relationships, I mean, it's, it's something that we, I think we all need to kind of work on in some degree. And it definitely translates into face how we approach Facebook marketing, hundred percent, or, or yeah. marketing in general. You know, in terms of you, you need to do the proper preparation so that you have the right set of expectations and that you're able to realize those things with greater success and uh, and prediction, right? Uh, which we'll dive into in a moment. But you know, I you and I don't know each other. I I was connected to you by Andrew O'Brien and. Great guy, by the way. He is a great guy. A great story, and and doing amazing things with his business. And I'm I'm an inquiring mind, and I, I'm sure there are other inquiring minds out there that want to know why you're an entrepreneur and why and how did you become a Facebook expert? So, what was the <laughs> impact moment that launched you? On this trajectory, yeah. So, th- so there's two, and the first is to the first question of why I became an entrepreneur, and the second has specific to do with pay- Facebook. And so, the first one was uh, this was un- unintentional and unplanned. Um, I had no intentions to be an entrepreneur. I didn't wake up with this like itch to say I wanted to start a business and you know live by a beach and have a laptop lifestyle or anything like that, which I don't do now, by the way. But I never, ha- I was never like hoaxed into that. I mean, it was built out or or desire birthed out of necessity, essentially. Uh, the long and short of it is when I was uh, when I was four, I saw my father had his first heart attack. When I was 17, he had his fourth heart attack. And uh, that took him out of out of business, essentially. Him and my mother had a, a convenience store, a small business that they were running together that barely paid the bills, but it was enough to pay the bills. Uh, that fourth heart attack took him out of commission. And so him and my mother had to give up that small business. And me being an only child was the primary breadwinner for my family. All of a sudden, it was kind of thrust upon me at 17. Um, I realized that being a high school, like just about to graduate high school student and getting a regular J-O-B wasn't going to cut it. That and the reality that I didn't take well to following authority. And I hate when people tell me when I can eat lunch and what I can do and that sort of thing. So I was almost thrust into the entrepreneurial world only because I didn't have a choice. Um, now, fortunately, looking in hindsight, I think it was a great, you know, the circumstances lay as they may, and it ended up doing some great things for my life. But that's how the whole kind of game started. Now, with Facebook, again, when I kind of tried to figure this whole thing out, and I had years and years and years of miserable, epic failures, it wasn't until I was sitting in a conference one day, and the guy who was talking up at the front asked how many people in this room use Facebook ads for their business. This was several years ago, and the vast majority of the hands went up. And then the second question he asked was, uh, how many people have found them to be profitable? And my hand was the only hand that stayed up. So something clicked 
In that very moment, as I was sitting in my chair that said I was doing the wrong thing, I think an opportunity has come before me. There's been a changing of the tides. I'm recognizing what the market and the industry wanted. And right there, silently in my head, I made the decision that I'm going to triple down on this Facebook thing and make that the thing that I'm going to be doing. To me, I call that, you know, the $10 million decision, because looking at back at it on hindsight now, it has really led to kind of the business we have today. So again, I think that was just right place, right time. I recognized an opportunity. Maybe the universe had something in store for me. And the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, well, that's a really powerful story. And, uh, you know, how are your parents doing today? Well, my father ended up passing in 2005 um, after, you know, just battling uh, illness after illness. Um, so that was kind of a difficult time. And I made a vow back then. I remember when when my my folks, you know, had to let go of their business. My mother had tried to get some jobs. She had uh, and she's an immigrant mother who couldn't speak English all that well. And she tried to get manual labor jobs and they wouldn't hire her. And she came home crying. And I made a vow that day that my mother will never in her life ever again have to worry about finances. And I'm happy to say now that she is fully taken care of. She lives in a very nice home. Uh, we are, we can afford to have her travel around the world with us or on her own with her family members. And she's uh, living uh, and enjoying life as a new grandmother here. So uh, I'm, I'm happy to report that uh, a couple years later here, everything are good. That's, that's amazing. What a powerful story. I have a great book recommendation for you, I think, that would resonate with you. Uh, and it's written by the founder of the Washington Speakers Bureau, a guy named Bernie Swain, who they represent, you know, the who's who of leadership and coaching and, you know, entrepreneur folks like uh, Condoleezza Rice and uh, Sugar Ray Leonard, all these, you know, celebrity speakers. Right. Uh, he wrote a book called What Made Me Who I Am, which it, which is essentially short biography stories of each of these amazing people he's worked with for the last 40 years, you know. And uh, your story, your success story, is very much like many of these amazing leaders. Uh, I want to transition into Facebook uh, and, and ads. All right. And I want to start with this question, which is, what is the most important question you wish all of your clients would ask but don't? Mm. You know what? I think I think the question is, do I have a predictable selling system that's in place that makes it worthy enough for me to actually go to Facebook and start buying some media and driving some traffic? Now, let me substantiate by saying most people, for whatever reason, think that the right eyeballs on whatever it is that I'm offering is the magic button and the solution to all things terrible. And so people come to the Facebook platform saying, man, I'm just, I can't, I'm so excited to get Facebook advertising going. If I could just drive a million people to my offer, to my website, everything will be made better. The reality is Facebook or any paid media for that matter is only, it's an accelerator. So if you have a great business that's generating great sales in a predictable fashion, and what I mean by that is if you know a exactly what a lead is worth to you. You know, every time someone visit your site, this many percentage of them is going to buy in a very predictable fashion. If you know that, then Facebook is going to be a game changer for you because all it is like Facebook is the eyeball store. If you will, you go to Facebook, you pay a little bit money, 
you get as many eyeballs as you want to, you know, whatever offer that you're running. Um, and so in that kind of situation, if you have something that's running really well, it'll be a great thing for you because every dollar you put in, you're going to make more than a dollar back. The, the misconception that I think people don't realize is if I don't have that predictable selling system, if I don't have a means that's actually, I know down to the metric, a certain percentage of people who see this are going to convert, then Facebook will be your greatest downfall. You will spend ridiculous amounts of money driving ridiculous amounts of eyeballs to the thing that you have. And if your thing sucks or it doesn't work, then you're in big trouble. Because now not only have you spent all this money on Facebook, but you have also had all these eyeballs who have chosen now to never do business with you ever again because of a terrible experience that they've had. So I think if we're going to rewind all the way back to the front, um, that is the question that every person needs to ask before they ever think about using Facebook or any paid media for that matter uh, to help kind of accelerate their business. Can you elaborate a little bit more on, let's say somebody doesn't have a predictable selling system as you, as you, as you said it. Sure. What steps do they need to take first in order to kind of develop that? How, what, how would you prescribe them to fix that problem before they jumped into Facebook? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, I mean, you know, in my industry, another term for a predictable selling system would be a sales funnel. It's essentially, if you're going to bring someone into your sales process, uh, what are the three, four, five, two steps, whatever it be, that, you, that someone usually goes through before they, in fact, go from prospect to customer or client? So I think the step one is, A, ask yourself, who am I trying to serve? I mean, if we're going back right to the very nitty gritty and the basics of getting going here, your entire business should revolve around not your business or your service or your product. Your business needs to revolve around the marketplace that you are attempting to serve. So the first question has to come down to who is it in fact that I'm trying to serve. And rather than blanketing statement and saying, oh, I'm just trying to serve women or I'm trying to serve, you know, whatever, I want you to be very, very specific with that. I call it the 4% rule. Um, you know, Pareto had an 80-20 rule that said 80% of any results comes from 20% of the effort. That's applicable in marketing as well. That, um, if you're going after a marketplace, you should be focusing on 20% that's going to generate 80% of the revenue for you. But I take it a step further and I say not just 20% because in today's social media world, it is really loud and busy and noisy. So the 20% of the 20% represents 4%. So the first thing I ask someone to do is who is the 4% of the population that you're trying to reach? Be very clear about who they are. Step number two is then get very clear about the needs that they need to have met that are not being met. Um, if you can be clear about their, what I call the four forces, if you're clear about their fears, frustrations, wants, and aspirations, and you can articulate what those are very clearly, then you're moving towards the right direction. So who are they? What do they need solved? And then thirdly, how can my product and or service provide resolution to some of these issues? How can I help someone get closer to where they're trying to go, my four percenters? How can I get them closer to where they want to go through my product or service offerings? Once you have that, that's kind of your foundation. At that point, you want to then ask, what is the one or two or three things that I have? And I call this a conversion event that I can put in front of that person 
that's going to move them from prospect to client or customer? Is it a sales page? Is it a webinar? Is it a podcast episode? Is it uh, something on my Shopify site? I, it, what it is, is is kind of irrelevant. It's the fact that you have something that you can say, if I ask, if I were to send a client or a customer to you, um, and they're just a prospect inquiring about what you do, what do you have that will help them convert and make a decision about becoming a client or a customer? Once you're clear on what that is, then you want to start just driving a handful of people there to see how well that converts. So if I know that I send 100 people to that conversion event and only one person converts as to a client or a customer, that tells me I have a 1% conversion rate. If I send 100 people there and three, per, three people convert or five per, people convert, the idea is get very clear about for every 100 people I send to that experience, how many of them convert. Now, if they are at a percentage that I am happy with, then we do some simple math and say, how much did I spend to get those people there? That's first question. Second question is, how much revenue did that generate? And then we divide those two numbers and we have our value per lead or value per visitor. That is what I call your magic metric. If you know how much each visitor is worth to you, you're now able to enter into the paid traffic game because as long as you can get visitors for under that amount, so if that amount is each visitor is worth $3 to me, but I can get a visitor for $1, it means that I am now in the money. I have a predictable selling system that I know converts at this percentage, and I know we're getting a little technical here, but as long as I have that, then I have a consistent, predictable, and a reliable means to take prospects and turn them into customers or clients, and now all I need are eyeballs to increase the amount of visitors I have to that conversion event. Does that make sense, Mike? Yeah, it does. It does. And so like, for example, if I had some sort of an ad or a lead magnet on Facebook that that then led to a video right. page where I, where I elaborated on whatever that message was and the objective for me, because like, for example, the products that I sell don't convert online, but the product I sell is me. So if somebody then booked an appointment to meet with me, right. that would be the conversion event, as you called it. And then I would have to further add to that by by going back into my reporting system somehow. And and ultimately, I'm the one that is closing the sale. There's not like an, a, a product that's being purchased. So it goes the lead magnet on Facebook, the video on the landing page, and booking the appointment. That's the conversion event. And then so if somebody doesn't have a pro an online product, uh, some sort of a widget that automatically is being bought on their website, how would you advise them to go back in and, and make sure that their metrics are are correct. Yeah. So we have a lot of clients, obviously, who are just like yourself, who they're not actually selling a product or a service um, that can be bought online, but because of the price point has to happen over a conversation. Uh, some people call that an enrollment call or a strategy session. Um, then your conversion event is, in fact, that enrollment call or strategy session, and you just kind of pull it back further. So if you, if you were to see, ultimately, the question you're asking is, what is the value of an appointment to me? 
And you can figure that out by saying, if I had 10 appointments and I enrolled three of those and I have a 30% conversion rate, um, it cost me, let's say, $1,000 to get those 10 appointments. I closed three at 5K a piece. That's 15 grand divided by the 100 that I spent to get them. What is the value of an appointment to me? And now you know, every time you're running a Facebook ad to say, if I can get appointments lower than this value, um, then I'm going to be in the money every time under the condition that all things kind of stay equal. And of course, we live a li- leave a little bit of budging um, to happen because sometimes your numbers will go up and down. Maybe you had a bad week or maybe you have a great week, but that's how I would approach it. Is just what is that conversion event? What is the value to you of someone that comes to that conversion event? And then as long as you can generate leads and or customers or clients under that cost, you are essentially in the money every single time you run an ad. Is this why you say, you know, in our in our emails back and forth, you were saying that a straight line is not a straight line on Facebook and you can't be selling direct from Facebook? Is it is this what you were kind of alluding to in our in our email chat? Yeah, 100 percent. And I'll tell you the story of how this really kind of hit home. Um, There's two sides of it. The first side of it is understanding that Facebook in and of itself is not a commerce driven platform. I mean, so the examples I like to use is, you know, Mike, if you woke up this morning and uh, you went onto eBay or you went onto Amazon, I can assume that you going onto eBay or Amazon, that you're going with a commercial intent. You probably have a credit card ready and you're looking to buy something. So it would not be uh, inappropriate for the person on the other end of Amazon or eBay to try to sell you something because that is congruent to the platform that you're on. Now, Facebook's a different game. Nobody wakes up in the morning, credit card in hand, saying, oh, I'm I'm looking to buy something on Facebook. Facebook is a social platform, not a commerce-driven platform. So people don't enter into that platform every morning with commercial intent. They're there with social intent. So the worst thing you can do on a social platform is bring commercial intent to it. And that would be the straight-line approach that most people would have. It's, hey, I have this widget I'm selling, or I have this course or this program or this service that I'm selling. Why don't I just go out on Facebook, write an ad to say, hey, buy my stuff and see how it converts? And the answer to that is it's not going to convert very well at all. Now, although theoretically, it seems like the straight line approach, the shortest distance between your prospect and your service. But on Facebook, when you realize that it isn't, in fact, a uh, commerce platform, it is a social platform, then the straight line isn't, in fact, the straight line. There always needs to be an intermediary step. And here's how we... Here's how we've not only found this out, but really proven the point to its deepest degree. I had a client of ours and a good friend of mine named Taki Moore. He's a Australian business coach, and he also has a, a version of his business here in America. And when he first went on Facebook ads, he hired a group to say, hey, we need to fill these events because that's how we, that's our conversion event. That's how we bring people into our business. Uh, we charge a couple hundred dollars for the event. And so that particular agency decided to run ads directly to the event. So in other words, if you went on Facebook and you saw an ad, the ad says, hey, come to my event. It costs $300. We'll see you there. Now, obviously, the copy was better than that, but that's essentially what it was doing. Um, They ended up spending $80,000 on that particular ad campaign. And what Taki told me is they couldn't actually trace back any sales to that particular campaign. So my friend is 80K in the hole 
because he did not respect the straight line approach. Now, that was no fault to his. That was the agency who basically said, yeah, we'll run ads to, to your event. So when he came to me, he's like, Nick, I'm, I'm, I'm gun shy. I, I don't know if Facebook can work for me because this is my previous experience. I said, well, what happened? In fact, I said, let me guess what happened. You drove ads directly to your event. And he said, exactly. I said, that's the last thing you can do because, in fact, the straight line is not the straight line. So instead, we put an intermediary step in between, which, as you related to, is a lead magnet. And then on the thank you page of that lead magnet, that is when we made an irresistible offer for a 50% discount to come to the event if you thought it was a good fit for you by making that one subtle shift. And of course, there's a lot of nuances behind that. But by making that one subtle shift, the second time we ran this campaign, we spent $1,853, so just under $2,000. That ended up generating $576,000 in revenue, or in other words, a 30,000 plus percent return on investment from that experience. And the case in point was simple. It was understanding that the straight line is not the straight line. You cannot come to a social platform with a commercial intent expecting that people are going to buy from you because that is not the reason why they're there. And that, again, goes back to you know the beginning of this conversation where we're talking about superpowers. It's literally just understanding social behavior and why people do what they do on the platforms that they're on. I mean, I think this is such an important and powerful conversation uh, just thus far. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the Impact Entrepreneur told you to call. You mentioned copy earlier and it, this is something that I'm not an expert in, and but I'm I'm fascinated by it. Sure. And and it definitely is important to understand social behavior if you're writing copy. So, what is kind of your formula, your approach for writing copy for these? these ads that appear on Facebook. Yeah, so uh, what I, I can say two things about that. We can get into the, the meta, and I will. I'd be happy to get into some of the specifics, but then there's also the macro. And to me, you know, with all this talk about copy and headlines and crafting together specific things, certain ways in order to persuade or influence to do someone to do something, I think the day of the like over-polished marketer is coming to an end. And all this stuff that we've read in the past, which worked in the past, um, is coming to end because like authenticity, transparency, and the social environment is not allowing people to get too slick with their kind of copywriting. So the the macro level or the high level strategy is this. I do not believe that I'm a good copywriter. I do not kind of follow the rules of traditional copy. But what I do know now is that the reason why someone will buy anything from me, the reason why someone will transact with anybody for that matter is because of one word. And this is just my belief, but I believe it to be true is because of this idea of resonance. Or in other words, we buy from people we know, like, and trust 
another way to put that is, is because we resonate with that person. And we've all had experience of this. We all had experiences where we, you know, saw a, a, an offer being made to us, however that was made. Maybe it was a little sloppy. Maybe all the right words weren't necessarily used. But at the end of it, we're like, wow, I really like that guy or gal. I'm going to invest into whatever it is that he's offering me. And we probably saw the opposite happen too, where the guy who had the perfect polished pitch was up there, said everything the right way, did all the right cues, used the stage the right way, put the soft music in the background, and everyone's like, oh, I'm ready to buy. He makes the offer, and we're like, ah, I don't think so. It just doesn't, and here's the terminology, feel right. So when we approach copy, my, I mean, my general understanding is, or my, my basic belief that I push out to the world is, when you're writing copy, good communication is not when your ideal prospect understands you and what you're trying to say. Good copy and communication is when your ideal prospect feels understood by you. In other words, there's connection. In other words, there's resonance. So at the end of the day, no matter what fancy trick or formula you come up with, if you are not connecting to that person on some level beyond words, if you're not connecting to that person beyond logic, but on a more intimate kind of gut level, if you will, an emotional level, no matter what kind of persuasive copy you write, I don't think it's going to work today in today's day and age. So the, the foundation to all of it is how do I communicate in such a way where that person who's reading this feels like I'm talking specifically to them and they get it because I'm being authentic and transparent about who I am and my experiences with that. Now, that being said, if you want, Michael, I can get into you know a couple of actual practical tactical stuff, but I think a Again, the, the macro level is what really is going to move the needle the most for people. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'd love for you to share a little bit of the, the tactics, and the, but I also have a question. So, like, one of your clients is Tony Robbins or was Tony Robbins organization, correct? But one of the divisions of the Tony Robbins group, yes. Yeah, and and I think I, I've seen their stuff on Facebook, and I think it it is a very it's beautifully done, mm. and it does just what you said. Mm. Was there a a, a turning point for them where they recognized that instead of selling their their events, really pushing to understand their end users' motivations occurred for them. Well, I don't know so much from 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 them and their their mindset. I mean, when they brought us on, and again, we work with the coaching division of uh, the Tony Robbins Group, the Robin Madanis Group. To, to, they just kind of gave us free liberty, and they trusted us as experts. And they said, "Hey, you guys know what you're doing. How would you approach this if this was you?" Um, and they gave us kind of carte blanche to write the copy how we wanted to. So we needed to get a really good understanding of Tony and how he operates, and what the offers were, and who they were for. And then based on that, they obviously let us write the copy in a much more of a connection type way. Um, and as a result, I mean, they're getting some astronomical uh, returns and responses and engagement for what we do with them. So I think it's a great point. But yeah, I don't know if there was so much a turning point for them, except for the fact that they said, hey, you guys know what you're doing. Can you turn this around for us? And and we said yes. And I'm glad to say that, or I'm glad to hear that even from a, a, someone on the other end like yourself who saw some of the work said, yeah, I can I can identify that there's much more of a, a connection rather than uh, an attempt to, to sell in some of the sad copy. But I think you just bring up a really, really important point for everybody listening and everybody that will read the article that we'll, we'll write for Huffington Post, that you can't be an expert at all things. You have to know your skills and you can be passionate and driven about something, 
and see an opportunity, but you have to know your skills. And unless you're willing to invest the time and the resources and the energy to develop that skill and that craft, you need to hire an expert. And even if you do invest the time and the resources to develop that skill, you're still going to be behind the game because there's already a guy like Nicholas that is, you know, got this thing dialed in. Sure. Sure. I, I, you bring up such a great point there. Dan Sullivan from Strategic Coach calls it your your genius or your, your, your unique ability, more specifically. And I think that's so true. As, as budding entrepreneurs, a lot of people starting out in the game are really just like all things to all people, wearing all sorts of hats. And, and maybe by force, you know, you're trying to bootstrap the business and I get it and you, you, nobody knows better than you. But there'll come a point in everybody's business where if they don't realize what their unique ability is, what is the thing that's going to drive the greatest revenue that is unique to them that they should focus on? You know, there's going to come a point where they have to A, realize that and then B, kind of outsource. I don't like using that term but delegate and outsource the rest of it. Otherwise, you're literally going to be held up. So I think it's a it's a very important point that you brought up that people are really going to have to realize. Yeah, I mean, just for my own podcast, I mean, I use, you know, I, I am not an audio guy. I'm not an editor. Uh, you know, I, I do, I'm good at interviewing and asking questions and having a conversation. And then I, I, I hand this stuff off to my team at Podcast Masters and they dial it in for me, you know I mean? And it saves me hours of, Frustration, right, <laughs> right. So, one you you mentioned that you were, you had some like more tactical ideas to that we could kind of elaborate a little bit on the on the on the concepts you were just talking about. Sure, sure. So, I, I, I mean, in in its very simplest form, uh, I, I have a little strategy that I call look hook took. Uh, when coming up and crafting with ad copy, look represents attention, hook uh, represents connection, and took represents a call to action. Um, so, I mean, we could, I have a whole 10 part ad strategy here. I mean, that's a 90 minute conversation just in and of itself. But first and foremost, let's just talk about kind of tactical stuff. Look, uh, look represents, in my opinion, one of the greatest factors of your ad, especially in kind of an attention deficit type world that we live in today, our goal is to capture attention. And the easiest way to do that through a Facebook ad would be through having, uh, through your image, essentially. Now, there's many things that you could do with your image to help capture that attention. But one of the things that I would advise people do is find images that actually provoke emotion through story. So I, I can't stand it when I'm going through like my Facebook newsfeed and someone's putting up a an ad about what they do and they use their image. I mean, granted, if you want to try and get your image out there and be more branded, that's fine. But like, nobody knows who you are. Your image, even no matter how good looking you are, is not going to necessarily drive the business. And then the other side of it is a lot of people are just using like stock images of, you know, whatever it be. And you can totally see that image and like, oh my God, that's so stock. Uh, we all know that we purchase based on emotion or we transact based on emotion, not just on logic. So I think one of the easiest ways to capture attention with our imagery is, and here's a rule that I like to follow, it's if my ad could could use no words, what image would I select to tell the story and to communicate the message I'm trying to convey? Now, fortunately, Facebook allows us to use words, so that's a good thing. But essentially, I want to look for images that are going to tap into the emotional like regions of people's brains and hearts, because again, that is what is actually going to create connection and attention. Um, so that would be a kind of a look strategy that someone can use. Um, under hook strategy, 
in other words, creating connection. Uh, I think it's important to, you know, if you'll read any of my ads, the second paragraph is always about building rapport. And a fundamental copy sequence I like to use for that is what I call feel felt found. And so here, again, if you understand the four forces, right, the fears, frustrations, wants, and aspirations of your ideal customer or client, when you're writing ad copy, you can follow a formula, something along the lines of, hey, I know how you feel. I've felt the same way too until I have found this new discovery. Now, again, you wouldn't use those words exactly, but the idea is in that copy, you're saying, hey, I went through this. So in other words, I know how you feel. I've felt the same way through too. So I've experienced this struggle and this you know, experience. And this is, again, our goal is to get someone to say, wow, this person really gets me. And then you set it up. Uh, you set up whatever it is that you're trying to offer. So let's say it's a lead magnet until I found these four key strategies that help me close more people on the phone. And I want to give that to you today. And so that kind of segues into the, the took, uh, the call to action. I learned this the hard way. Some of the first few years we were writing ads, we never put a call to action in the copy. And so I remember remember I'd posted an ad and one of the first comments that came up in one of those ads was, so how do I get this? And I'm thinking, just click on the bloody ad, silly guy. Like that's all you got to do. <laughs> but I realized that I didn't actually provide instruction. So now in my copy, it is very clear. I say, click here to, you know, whatever, download this, this blueprint or click here to watch this video. I'm very clear about the action that someone needs to take in order for them to actually get what it is that I'm trying to give. So those are just kind of some tactical things around look, hook, took um, that will definitely help people craft some highly uh, better converting ads. I love that. Let me ask you a question about like video, for instance. Do you think it's important in the context of the ad to communicate the length of that video? Like, so for example, click here to watch this two minute video. Do you think it's, that's important? Yeah, I, I would say it depends on how long that video is. So if it's like a, a 72 minute video, please don't say click here to watch a 72 minute video because people are going to ignore you. <laughs> um, but if it is a short video, then I'm very much for that. But I wouldn't say two minute video. I'd actually say exactly how long it is. Um, there's something about specificity in ads that actually can convert higher. So if it was a one minute, 56, uh, one minute and 56 second video, I would say click here to watch this one minute and 56 uh, second video. Um, so again, depending on the length, I think it would be wise to mention that for sure. But again, if it's way too long you just don't want to be you don't want to give anyone a reason to say no to you in our uh, in our email chat you were i loved the analogy that you used on uh, about facebook and you called it an iceberg mm. and you said that most marketers are focusing on the wrong thing 10 percent above the surface when it's 90 percent below the surface that really matters you elaborate a little bit more? Yeah. So, you know, when I originally talked about Facebook advertising and what most quote unquote gurus are doing out there, and please let me say this, you know, and be very clear about that. I'm not against what other people in my space are doing. I think there's some very great people teaching some great tactical things around Facebook, and they're very good at what they do, but that's not what I do. The 10% and the 90%, we all know that if we see an iceberg, the 10% is above the surface and the 90% or the bulk of the actual iceberg is below the surface. And what most people do, whether they're the ones teaching it or the ones learning it, are focusing on the 10%. And to me, the 10% represents the tactical, technical elements of Facebook. So they're asking questions like, how do I, what, what kind of bidding structure should I use? Or what should my uh, objective be in my campaign? Or, or they're asking like very nitty gritty type of uh, copy questions, or should I do right side or newsfeed? And again, I think those 
are all very, very important questions to be asking, but it's not going to be the needle movers. The needle movers to me is the 90% below the surface. And to me, that's everything that's happening outside the actual context of the Facebook ad itself. So that would include things like, what is my predictable selling system? Do I have a properly named lead magnet that's going to convert higher than a badly named lead magnet? Do I understand who I'm actually targeting and their pain points and their frustrations? You know, all these kind of behind the scenes psychological things are actually what allows me to get the highest ROIs in our industry versus the other guy who's simply talking about tactics and technical stuff. So I would advise that before anyone kind of jumps into the Facebook game, yes, it is important to learn these tactical, technical things. But that's why even, you know, in our two-day event, I call it the art of lead generation. I could have called it the science of lead generation, but I don't. I call it the art because what our major emphasis on is all the 90% below the surface before we ever dive into the 10% above the surface type stuff. What do you mean by a bad name for a league magnet versus a good name? Do you have an example of... In fact, I do. Um, So this came up because one of our clients basically had this video um, that was called (laughs) How to uh, Attract More High-Paying Clients. Now, I laugh and I say I laugh tongue in cheek, but the reality is, God, I don't know how many bloody people who are business coaches or consultants say that same crap. How to attract high paying clients. Now, does it essentially tell you what you're doing? Yeah, it does. But again, it's just noise and it's a red ocean to me. If you're saying the same thing that everybody else in your industry is saying, you've got to scream louder and be more creative and do some all sort of like sneaky stuff that's not really going to work for you. So when they came to me, they said, well, here's my lead magnet. It's a video showing people how to uh, uh, attract high, more high-paying clients. So I said, you know what, let's let's scrap that. Keep the content. I think the content of the video is great, but let's just change the name. So when I looked into it, I said, well, what is really going to move somebody? Why does someone attract want to high, uh, attract uh, high-paying clients? And what is it really internally in their gut that they want to have? And what I realized is they were kind of tired of chasing clients and they wanted the higher level echelon of their, you know, ideal prospect coming to them rather than them chasing them. So long story short, we went through a little bit of a process, but we ended up calling uh, the lead magnet uh, the velvet rope method. And essentially the imagery or the metaphor there was, uh, you know, if you're at a VIP club, there's a velvet rope and uh, only the VIPs can come through. So the, the magnet with the video was called the velvet rope method, how to have your ideal high ticket client chase you rather than you chase them. Now, simply by doing nothing more than changing the name of that lead magnet, we went from a cost per acquisition of $8.49 down to $3.20. Again, nothing changed except simply the name of the lead magnet to make it more, A, highly appealing, and B, more connective to the person who was seeing it on the other end. And that in and of itself essentially dropped down the cost by two-thirds. That's beautiful. Uh, do you think that you know when, when people are looking at their, their dollars to spend on the whole entire package, which means not just the actual cost for the Facebook ad, but but also the the look and the hook, as you call it earlier. You know, when they're when they're working on their their content, essentially, do you think that it can be as simple, like for for video, for example? Do you think it could be a simple video that you somebody just records on their iPhone, or do they need like a full on produced uh, video? Yeah, that's a great question, and and. 
the 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 proper answer is it depends but the answer that we have found especially in all the tests that we've done and all the different people that we've worked with is again i want i want people to be thinking about user behavior and i want people to think about authenticity and transparency and when you think about all these things of how people interact on a social platform we have found in general so this is not a rule of law it's a rule of thumb that you can in fact overproduce video and the overproduction of a video can actually end up biting you in the ass. And sometimes the iPhone video that you're running a selfie with or that you're just putting behind your desk because you're talking in your home um, or your office ends up outperforming the highly produced video. Now, that's not always the case, and that's not in every niche. I mean, if your brand represents professionalism and your brand represents, you know, very, very proper ways of doing things, then maybe an overproduced video will actually serve you better than not. But in general, again, if we're just thinking about why do people do what they do on on Facebook, what is the kind of social atmosphere, you'll see that the vast majority of videos that are being interacted with are the, the, the iPhone in my hand kind a little bit unstable, a little shaky, but really good content type stuff. So that's what I would lean people towards um, as a first go at something. I, I love this, man. This is this is this is an amazing, eye-opening conversation for me. I'd love to get to some of your your tribes questions that they asked uh, in your private Facebook group. So Glenn asked, he would love to know how you and other big advertisers managed to get around the audience overlaps issues, specifically how to get away with running multiple ads to the same audiences and the same placements and not have your CPLs go through the roof from ad sets competing with one another. Yeah, that's okay. So, I mean, we're getting a little technical and I hope we don't lose people who are who have no idea what that means. But essentially, you know, one of the things that we do when we talk about scaling is one of the four different strategies that we use is to when you find it, a winning ad set is to duplicate it so you can reach more people with it. And the argument always comes up, well, if I have duplicate ad sets going after a particular audience, am I in fact competing against myself? And the answer, the short answer is yes and no. If you have an audience size of only a few thousand people and you have 14 ad sets going against those 14,000 people, then yeah, you could at some point start competing against yourself and you start to see your ad cost or your lead cost go up. But if your audience is only 14,000 people, then you should by no means be scaling hard into that, that audience. It's just too small. Um, now, if your audience audience is 10 million people because you're scaling hard and you have a mass market offer, then we've been known to duplicate ad sets 40, 50, 60, even 70 times and never, ever have an issue with competing against ourselves just because the audience is so large anyways that we've never seen that issue. And because of that, we've been able to maintain our CP within a reasonable range. So uh, I don't think it's it's a matter of are you competing yourself against yourselves or not? It's what is the size of your audience? And then based on that, are you deploying the proper strategy to reach that audience in the fastest way possible? I'd like to talk just uh, about audience because I think that that is a question that that a lot of people have, including myself, about size of audience. You know, when, when, when I look at uh, Facebook, when I first ran my first Facebook ad, I took the shotgun approach and like my, made my audience as huge as I thought, <laughs> yeah. you know, wh- wherever I could possibly do business. And that completely failed miserably. So, yeah. so let's, let's talk a little bit about the importance of knowing your audience and really 
why big is not necessarily best. Yeah, so I think there's a couple things that we could talk about with with regards to this. The first thing is I get the question all the time, well, what is the ideal size for an audience? And uh, I, I get the like the heart behind the question, but it's the wrong question. To me, any size is ideal. I've pulled clients out of three to 5,000 person audiences in little small towns in the middle of, you know, suburban or rural UK. And I've pulled customers out of 10 million plus audiences. So for someone to say, oh, well, a 5,000 person audience is too small. I'm not going to bother with it. I think you're out of your mind. If you, there are customers everywhere. And if you know how to communicate and reach them, you're going to get them. It just means on smaller audiences, you're probably going to reach them a lot faster. So you're going to have to change things up a bit. So that's the first kind of myth that I want to like destroy here to say there is no ideal number. It just means smaller audiences mean more frequent changes. Larger audience means less frequent changes. Uh, another rule, uh, how in with regards to what you've been talking about here, Michael, is that um, we always like to separate out every time we target a new audience. So in your case, where you took the shotgun approach and you lumped as many audiences as you can together in one big group, and then you kind of went after them. Here's my gripe about that. Let's say it did start to work. And of course, work is defined as whatever you want to define as working versus non-working. But let's say it was in fact working. My problem now is I don't know which of those audiences is actually producing results. So let's say I was in the personal development space. Um, I was going after some audiences of some you know high profile uh, personal development people. So let's say Tony Robbins, Brendan Burchard, uh, and Wayne Dyer, whatever. Let's just pick some random people here. I put all their audiences together. I have a 10 million person audience. I start running ads. Leads start to come in and let's say $5 a piece. Now, my problem is maybe Tony Robbins' audience's leads are actually coming in at a dollar. And maybe Wayne Dyer's are coming in at $10, but I would never know because they're averaging out at five. So I could be wasting a whole heap of money on an audience that is actually underperforming for me. So the only way to deal with that would be to separate out the audiences every time we run an ad and to see, in fact, how is Wayne's audience doing for me? How is Tony's audience? How is Brendan's audience? And so on and so forth. Um, so that would be one of the, the reasons I would say kind of go against this, this kind of shotgun approach uh, or this massive audience approach, just because you won't know what's working versus what is. And that, and you narrow that down by specifically selecting or eliminating certain keywords and as you're building your audience set. Yeah. So at the end of the day, kind of the general rule of thumb is one major targeting, uh, whether it's an interest group or behavior or demographic, one major target per ad set. And that's where you can test how well that particular target group is performing against others. Another one of your, uh, your tribe members asked, how should beginners start? so they can get to the next level and be prepared for some of your advanced strategies, some of which we've talked about on the on the show today, but but uh, how, how can they get prepared? Yeah, so I think there's this misconception about what I do in the sense of what I do is advanced strategy versus beginner strategy. Um, I don't like to see it that way. I don't see it to. I don't like to see it as kind of an an, uh, an acceleration model. And what I mean by that is because like when we do our intensives, for example, we'll have people who are running ten million dollar plus businesses who are very very quote unquote advanced at Facebook marketing, and then we have people who maybe have never run a Facebook ad in their life before, and they're sitting in the same room and both of them walk out with the same experience. And when I say the same experience, I just mean a valuable experience to be able to deploy in their business and get better results. And I, the only way that that can happen is not because 
there's a beginner, intermediate, advanced level to, to what we do. It's because there's a good way to do it and then there's a better way to do it. And to me, our way is the better way. And it doesn't matter if you uh, have beginner skills or not, or you're an advanced skill or not, you're just learning a brand new, better way to do it. So the experience is new for everybody. Now, that being said, I know I kind of alluded or I, I avoided answering the real question of what can a beginner do. I think the what a beginner can do is literally go back to the first part of this conversation that we were discussing of like, if someone was starting out, what are the four things that they need to do? A, they need to kind of identify that target market, B, identify the pain point, C, identify how their offer can meet some of those pain points, D, create kind of that predictable selling system or that conversion event and then go from there type of thing. So I don't know if that specifically answers the question, but again, I, I, I just, I hate when people say I've got a beginner's mindset versus an advanced mindset. I think there's just good ways to do things and then better ways to do things. And I think uh, if someone's ready to go for the better things, that's great. And if they're not, then learn the good things and then one day move on to the better things. Yeah. And if they consider themselves a beginner, they can hire you and immediately jump to the advanced app. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, yeah, like the, I don't, I, I, you know, the, as Drake says, started from the bottom and now I'm here. Um, I, I don't think you need to start from the bottom. I think you can just kind of dive into learning the better way to better, better ways to do something in every area of business and just kind of go straight to the top. So you're not wasting any time in the process. As we're coming up on the end of our conversation, which is incredibly valuable, if there was one thing that you wanted people to remember from our conversation, what would it be? I think it just comes back to understanding in today's world, the currency that creates transactions is connection. So drop all this funky, weird marketing stuff that you may have picked up in certain courses. I'm not saying it's necessarily bad, but I'm saying if you can just get to the heart and the core of being authentic and transparent um, and you lead by providing value. I think that's another important thing here. I think the only reason that I am where I am today has nothing to do with crafty marketing or have have anything to do with great salesmanship. I think it has to do with I'm willing to pour value into my industry, whether or not people are willing to transact with me. Um, I have no attachment to a transaction. I'm just going to put value into my industry, and then I'm going to trust that the right people are going to come to me, and we're going to do business together on some level. So yeah, the two key things are, one, remember connection and to provide value before anything. And I think you'll be fine. Powerful, powerful advice. You know, we will definitely point people to your website and to your to your work and social media and all that stuff in the show notes, as well as in the article. Is there another place that they should go to see examples of your work or read anything else about you? Yeah, so I think there's two places they could go. Um, well, actually, a bunch of places. One would be our Facebook group that you've already alluded to. It is a private group, but it is free and open to the public. They just have to request to join. That's Facebook Marketing Mastery. We have close to, I don't know, 13,000 people in there growing at about 100 people a day so far of people who are just looking, you know, business owners who are looking to grow things. That's where I spend my time. So I can definitely jump in there and help some people. So that would be one resource my website and or my blog, nicholaskuzmich.com, uh, and then backslash blog, if you want to, has a couple of pieces of content in there, not a tremendous amount. And then I have this great teaching that I do called the Behind Closed Doors Workshop. Um, and that can be found at Nick's blog, N-I-C-S-B-L-O-G.com slash secret. Um, you got to opt in to see that training. It's a 36-minute training, which is essentially kind of a summary of all my highest level strategies compressed into one training that I think for the right person will be truly valuable for. Well, Nicholas, thank you uh, very much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show today. 
very valuable conversation. And now we will let you get back to your 11-week-old baby. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate your time. And your wife, who probably needs a break right now. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Nicholas, thank you for generously sharing your experience and expertise with us this week. We are blessed by your story and wisdom. In case any of you missed any of the key points, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash 41 for all the key points and the highlights of the conversation I had with Nicholas, including a link to the Huffington Post article I wrote about Nicholas and his incredible Facebook marketing tips. And while you're there, be sure to check out the Lawton Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. I couldn't do this show without them. Until next time, go make an impact.